What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Hello, this is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast show. I am sitting here today in our offices in San Francisco, and I am with Chris Nossel. Um, he has an interesting spelling of his last name, but he said it's easy, just it rhymes with fossil. Um, Chris is the um, global design practice lead of travel and transportation at IBM, but he's also a speaker and author, and today we're going to be focusing a lot on the author portion of his business, which I think ties back to what he does as his day job. Uh, but welcome, Chris. Thank you. So um, I want to start where I like to start with most folks, which is you you do have an interesting career path. I can certainly see more of a thread through yours than other people where it's like, wait, how did you go from point A to point B? But um, just a few little, you know, nuggets here as I was looking at your LinkedIn. Uh, One of your first jobs was at the uh, Houston Museum of Natural Science. You're a team lead uh, there as well. Uh, you've been at Microsoft, you've been at March 1st, and you're now with IBM, and you also have an adjunct professor uh, gig thrown in there. So talk a little bit about what that journey has looked like and, and what's led you to your current state. Yeah, happy to do so. I think we actually both share a bit of history in Texas. Is that correct? Yes, I lived in Austin for six years and moved out here about two years ago. Okay, so nice. I've, well, I was raised in Houston. Um, I wasn't born there, and that matters in Texas. Uh, but I got there as soon as I could, uh, and then was there, did my undergraduate degree there. And actually, interestingly, my undergrad degree was in graphic design. Um, but in conversations with the instructors there, like I, I kind of got the, the problems that we were solving within, with graphic design, and I was like, there's a, there's a bigger problem. There's, there's computers in the world now. There's, there's human psychology to take account of. And that actually sort of led to my getting involved with what was then called multimedia, but... Uh, nowadays, we call it uh, interaction design, and uh, that led to work at the museum. It was I was like the, the museum was super excited about this using computers for exhibit design. How can that work out? Uh, so I worked there, um, hired a whole bunch of folks, trained a whole bunch of folks, and then uh, once the hall that we were working on was done, took a, the cream of that crop and started a small company. Um, I. Around 99, left Texas because I wanted to really come to the uh, more tech hub that landed me in San Francisco, uh, which gave me about two years to watch the dot-com boom before the crash happened. Um, and I saw like rounds and rounds of friends getting laid off from March 1st, the company where I was at the time, um, and decided to go to grad school since I was doing interaction design but had never been trained in it formally. Went to a small school in northern Italy called the Interaction Design Institute of Evrea. I was one of the founding students, but after about five years, uh, I had, I only spent two years there, but after five years, uh, it was purchased by the Domus Academy in Milan, so it no longer exists, um, but had a great international experience, really formally studying interaction design um, and technology and business and human psychology uh, before going to work uh, at Microsoft with the Futures Prototyping team which was a really cool team. We were charged with sort of like walking through the halls of research and development, finding the coolest stuff that was coming, and then building these smoke and mirrors demos um, that Craig Mundy could take on the road and show people what the future would be like. Uh, I worked for a small consultancy uh, here in San Francisco after that for about 10 years, 
which is a long time to work for as a consultancy. Uh, but uh, they were recently purchased by Design It. Um, but I left there last year in order to join IBM, partially because uh, the they have IBM Watson. And uh, I was quite interested in beginning to write uh, my most recent book that touched on narrow AI. Um, and so I was really eager to work with um, the leaders. Well, it sounds like an awesome journey. And I, I can't help but say I'm a little jealous. I geek out on technology. I am creative, but I am not necessarily creative enough to be, you know, a designer. I can sort of play one on TV. Um, so I do want to get into, you know, the books because obviously, you know, you've done all that and certainly that's informed uh, what you've done, but you've written three books, uh, which is, was pretty impressive. And the titles I have to uh, admit were equally impressive, right? So I'll, I'll do my best to not butcher them, but I think you've written uh, the about face, the essentials of interaction design and make it so interaction design lessons from science fiction, which actually really struck me as interesting. I was reading an article from um, The Verge that uh, you were interviewed in, and that was actually cool, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And then your most recent is Designing Agentive Technology, if I didn't butcher that one, AI that works for people. So let's start by you know, talking about how you got that urge. I've written one book, it was a dummies book. It was really hard. You've written three, and you've written three on fairly meaty topics. So let's start with, like, what was your inspiration to do those, and then maybe we can dive into the books themselves a little bit. Sure, happy to do so. Um, I, I've been a writer for – I was asked recently um, how long I've been writing, and as I went back through my history and I realized uh, I was a writer in high school, and I never even thought of myself as a writer. Uh, but I wrote an article for my high school's newspaper. Um, it was like an – op, an opinion comedy article thing. Uh, and uh, I think I let that bug die for a long time as I was focusing on other things like graphic design and uh, then multimedia, then interaction design, um, where I, I honestly thought that a lot of my job was to get out of the way, um, not be present in the thing that I was making. Um, but, in, but, but I still continued to write I wrote for a website called Everything Two. Just while I was at working at Microsoft, I was introduced to it by a professor in grad school. It's kind of like a like a first person Wikipedia, so not just like what's what's a. I try to think of a good example of something that would be in that book. Uh, oh, uh, not just what's a sun dog, but what's your what's your personal experience of a sun dog, uh, and cut a lot of teeth getting back into writing on that site. Uh, then uh, it was in grad school that I had written, of course, a thesis project. And my thesis advisor at the time was a fellow by the name of Nathan Shedroff, um, who's written quite a number of books. Um, and uh, Nathan, after I moved back to the San Francisco Bay Area, um, took me to lunch and he was like, I have this idea for a book and I really liked your thesis project. Um, and I know that you're a sci-fi nerd, so I really want to write this with you. Um, and he told me about it. Um, he said, hey, look, I've, I noticed way back in the day um, when Motorola came up with its first flip phone, literally the thing flipped open, and his first thought, because he was a big Trekkie, was, oh, that's a Star Trek communicator. And he did some research and found out that it wasn't an accidental copy. It was a literal copy. It was a deliberate copy. Uh, some designers at Motorola had uh, designed a flip, uh, clamshell phone that opened sort of from its side edge. Uh, and they took it to some outside designers, and please forgive me, I don't remember the name of that group. I should. Uh, and their first response was, yeah, this is cool, but it opens the wrong way. 
because people have had like decades of training from Star Trek, it should open at the top. And they did, and it was a wildly successful phone. And partly that's attributable to the decades of training that we had in science fiction that it was a cool thing to have. Can I ask you a quick um, question just to interrupt you? But it sounds like because we have a broad audience that listens to this, uh, and some people may know what you know that technology is, the um, interaction design, but it sounds like that is a good example of interaction design. It's sort of understanding you know, uh, some of the, the user experience and then also being able to, you know, take muses from or, or sort of inspiration from science fiction or other movies where someone has theoretically come up with something and then you can actually put it into practice. So am I even in the right ballpark in terms of how I'm talking about this? Uh, you are, um, uh, especially sort of back in the day when Motorola was working. Um, interaction design is a, is a field that deals with how we use things. Um, anytime that you have, well, I, the way I used to explain it uh, was if you're, if a light is still blinking on your VCR, that was bad interaction design because they didn't make it apparent how it is that you could change that clock. Um, what are the controls that you have? Um, how do you then say, yes, this is the correct time and stop it? Um, interaction design probably came to the forefront in more recent times with the introduction of the iPhone. Suddenly, it wasn't about the product design, what are the buttons on this object, but how do we use it when it's just a plane of glass and a single button? Um, so I was in interaction design sort of before we called it that. Um, but uh, nowadays, I think I can say it and reference the iPhone, and most folks uh, know what I'm talking about. Okay, so I, I will look at it as in my simple parlance, it is sort of this user experience, but you know, for products where a lot of people think about user experience on the computer or in the phone, maybe even in the store. So um, that's cool. Let's go back to the books. So you gave us the inspiration behind why you wrote that, and clearly you had a good enough experience with this first project uh, to be able to not only do it once but repeat it two other times. <laughs> it's true. Um, uh, after we finished Make It So, that got me uh, back onto the speaking circuit, uh, which I really enjoyed, and uh, started a blog based on the same topics. Um, so I had a big body of work to refer to, and at the time I was working uh, at, a, at the small consultancy Cooper here in town. And the head of that, the owner of that small consultancy, had written a book called About Face in the 90s, I believe it was. Um, and about interaction design before uh, smartphones came out, before mobile was a big thing. Um, so this was on about the early 2010s, I think. No, no, no. I published Make It So in 2012, so this would have been around 2014. Um, and that company just said, hey, we want to revise this book. That's all about interface design, and we need it updated. Can you help us update it? Um, so I was responsible for uh, bringing that body of work to include things like gestural interfaces or voice interfaces and mobile interfaces um, because it was showing its age from when it was written. Um, it's still a good book. It's used as a textbook in a lot of different universities, um, teaching people all who want to get into that field uh, all a whole lot of stuff about interface design. So you did give me an idea while you're doing that if you're open to it. So we're doing this interview now. I write a article for uh, Marketing Land on mobile marketing, okay. and I think I might love to pick your brain a little bit. And so I have two follow-up questions. One is, I assume that um, it must be difficult sometimes walking through the world because you probably have that type of brain where you look at everything and see where it could be improved and where the sort of 
um, you know, that design falls down. So one, let's, let's take that one on. And then I have a question about the title of your third book. Oh, sure. Um, uh, you, you are correct. Uh, I have a number of friends who don't want to go see sci-fi shows with me. Um, partially because my, my first layer of critique is, wait a minute, that couldn't happen that way. Um, there's, uh, this is actually not an interface design example, but there's an older science fiction movie called, uh, oh, Event Horizon. And the, the movie opens up and the camera's sort of in this spaceship and out sort of these broken windows, you can see the edge of a planet. Um, and there are all these metal objects that are floating by the camera. And clearly we've got this scene set up that, ah, there's no air here, there's no gravity. It's a very foreign hostile, and something happened here. And then to my utter frustration, two metal objects come together and touch in right in front of the camera and they make a clinking sound. And I just got so angry, I was like, there's no air to propagate the sound. <laughs> this movie is going to be terrible. And sure enough, the rest of the movie just was awful. Um, <laughs> I'm glad they could telegraph that. But that's just a good example of how, like, I do have this filter of, wait a minute, that, that shouldn't be that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, speaking of uh, the future in science fiction, so your third book, Designing Agentive Technology. First of all, let's start with, like, I've never even seen this word before. So what does uh, agentive technology even mean? It is, a, it is a languishing term. Uh, it's the adjective version of agent. So agent is a noun. Uh, and the, that noun means uh, something that will act on your behalf, right? Uh, you might uh, get a lawyer to be an agent for your uh, will and testament. Um, you might get a travel agent to say, hey, uh, go find me great deals. I'd like ocean and I have this much money, right? We have the technology now, uh, the recent, develops in recent developments in narrow AI, in order to let technology act as an agent. And rather than speak of it as designing an agentive, uh, sorry, designing an agent, I was trying to find the adjective version. Uh, I looked it up in the dictionary and said, oh, there is one. Uh, so agentive tech is that kind of narrow artificial intelligence that can act on your behalf. Would it be safe to say things like Google Assistant and maybe Siri and maybe even Amazon Echo start to demonstrate some of these agentive technologies? Yes, sir. Kind of. Uh, Google's Assistant, more than anything else, um, it knows your calendar, it knows your preferences, it knows your commitments, uh, and can actually sort of tap you on the shoulder, metaphorically, and say, hey, if you want to make that meeting, you need to leave now because there's extra traffic. I didn't ask the Google Assistant to do that, but it's out there watching the world for me. Um, the other examples, like uh, Amazon's Echo, mine's called Echo, but Alexa, I have to remind myself that other people choose their default name. Uh, Amazon's Alexa and Apple Siri are more like assistants. They only respond when you ask them something. And because of that, it's a different kind of thing. My attention is on the question, and I'm anticipating the answer, and I'm anticipating the help. Um, but uh, with Google Now, I don't have to think about that. It happens even when I'm not, my attention is not on it. So, so there's an element of proactive versus passive. Because as an example, you know, Siri, and I'm not meaning to split hairs here, but I can say, hey, Siri, you know, uh, can you find Italian restaurants near me? And it says yes, and then we'll say, do you want me to make a reservation? And it knows that if I've got open table, it could theoretically open that up. 
Whereas Google is saying, I'm paying attention to things and I'm, I'm going to metaphorically tap you on the shoulder. <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, there, there's one example that I turn to quite a bit uh, that's kind of simple um, and then it leads to uh, the bigger complexities. Uh, but that's the iRobot Roomba. It's a vacuum cleaner, unlike a vacuum cleaner that's come before it, right? Dyson has got a great product, um, and but it still requires your attention. Y you have a handle to hold. You have to plug it in. You have to step on it to start it, start up the, the vacuum pump. Um, and the Roomba is still a vacuum, at least in name, but there's no handle for me to hold it. There's no switch for me to step on, right? What it does is it watches the clock and the calendar and says, oh, on weekdays at 3 p.m., I'm going to go vacuum according to a really smart algorithm. And uh, as long as I don't get stuck, I'll go back to the charging station. I'll be done. Um, and that really embodies the two aspects of agent of tech that uh, I write about in the book. One is that we ask them to watch for triggers, watch the world, some data stream. And when X happens, then you need to execute the second part, which is some behavior. Um, and Roomba and like an alarm clock are very simple. They just watch time and the calendar. Um, but there are agents that watch much more complicated data streams. Um, I started writing the book when I was working on the design of a robo-investor, a narrow artificial intelligence that helped manage a stock portfolio. Uh, and it's watching every single stock and the way it's trending and index funds and news items that may be related all in order, all in service of helping you meet your financial goals. Um, so Roomba is a good base model, but it extends far beyond that. So can I ask you a follow-up question on when you say narrow AI, because I'm fascinated by this space, does that mean that maybe in both the examples, it sounds like there's a very, um, like a call center, you can have technology that listens to calls and sort of analyzes them because you know sort of what the topic is and you have theoretically millions of, you know, calls to draw upon. In this case, with this uh, agentative um, technology with, you know, Roomba, it sort of knows what it's doing. I think in the case of the robo-investor, it knows it's just looking at stocks and it has a very sort of narrow set of criteria across a large data set, but it makes it easier for it to use the artificial intelligence, intelligence because it's working off a narrow set of sort of parameters versus unlimited parameters where like a Siri, I can ask Siri anything in the world. And so it has, it obviously draws off the internet, but uh, it doesn't, it can't be trained, you know, specifically across, you know, one thing or five things. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the literature on artificial intelligence uses narrow AI to distinguish the AI that we have in the world today, uh, which is all very smart, but in a very constrained domain, right? I like uh, Roomba is pretty smart, but there's I can't ask it to use its smarts to help me plan a Thanksgiving dinner, right? It just knows how to vacuum. It knows how to watch the clock. Um, and the literature distinguishes narrow AI from general AI, which is what we see in sci-fi. Um, BB-8 from Star Wars is a general AI. It can encounter a, a whole new domain and take the information that it knows from other domains and apply to it and deal with it. Humans have a general intelligence um, and computers aren't there yet. Um, so what we have in the world is narrow AI and I'm a practical guy. So that's the AI that I'm most interested in. That's cool. Um, I want to ask one business related question that I do want to get into the last two, which are, you know, who influences you and, you know, uh, the music piece. Um, 
how how do you use this if you don't mind me asking at IBM today? So I, I know you said that you're um, you work with the Watson team, right? Um, they're a client of ours, just in full disclosure, particularly the Watson Health team. Um, so what what does a day in a life look like for you in terms of you know what you're doing? Is it specifically helping? You know, Watson with interaction design, is it helping, you know, other products or inform other products or is it looking to the outside world and helping them? I know we talked about you're in travel and transportation, so clearly that's probably the more germane uh, piece of the topic. But yeah. uh, tell us a little bit about that. So about a third of my responsibilities at IBM are around doing design thinking workshops for clients. And because I'm the design lead for the travel and transportation group. That means airlines and airports and rail systems and uh, freight and logistics and travel-related services like uh, hotels or travel agencies. Um, and in those design thinking workshops, uh, we're often talking with them about how do we apply Watson to a given problem, whether it's an internal technical problem to improve their customers, I'm sorry, their employees' experience, uh, or we're trying to improve the user's experience through those workshops. Uh, and I often use the agentive framework in order to talk about, well, what is it that we're going to do for the user when their attention is with us, and what can we do for the user when their attention is not? Um, for instance, uh, I worked with a, uh, an airline in Europe fairly recently, and we were talking about modernizing their uh, freight handling, uh, which often entails lots and lots of laws and constraints given the place, the, the, the destination and the origin of that piece of freight, as well as the policies of the airline, right? Um, if we're going to be carrying dangerous goods, they have to be packaged a certain way. They can't be over a certain weight because it puts a, a risk of the human lives that are aboard the airplane, um, the cargo plane. So um, to modernize that, one way is to say, well, we'll ask a human to look at every single piece of freight that comes through and augment their intelligence, right? Where we say, oh, this looks like it's the correct dimensions. Um, given what the, the freight manifest says, we can say, yes, this is the right weight. Um, or, oh, you need to pay attention to these special things. Um, or we could take an agentive approach, which says that let's train Watson on those things um, and only draw the attend to problems to the user's attention. Right, if this is way under the size limit, we don't need to take a look at it. If it's packaged properly, we don't need to look at it. Um, so taking an agentive approach helps the humans focus on what humans are good at and humans are interested in. Um, and finding those agentive bits allow us to take a lot of the drudgery, the routine work off of the, off the human's attention. So uh, it's a framework that often comes up when people say, oh, let's bring AI to solve this problem. Let's, let's, let's pull Watson in. We say, okay, that's cool. Let's talk about how. Well, I love the fact that IBM has done this and obviously you're their agent in this regard, but starting with the, let's do a workshop and let's talk about what the problem is that we're trying to solve or the opportunity we're taking advantage of. Yep. And then if the agentive technology, the Watson, you know, is a, right piece of the puzzle, then that comes to the table. But that feels like a much more natural way to uh, obviously leverage the the good that's there. So that's cool. Thank you for indulging me on that. So I do want to get to the last couple um, topics here. So one is, um, you know, anybody, I think maybe you'd argue your professor that you inspired you to write the first book might be one of these people. But, you know, anyone over the course of your life that has been an inspiration to you, and then I would love to talk about, you know, 
you're busy writing books, but are there any books that you've read recently maybe that, you know, have inspired you and that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, it was funny because uh, you had sent some of these questions in advance. Um, and this not, not a lot of advance, just so I give Chris <laughs> you know, proper due, but he did get them the night before, so he had a, a little bit of time to ruminate on them. Uh, and I'm a word guy, uh, very vested in the distinct meanings of words. And, and I was struck by inspiration, the, the question, um, because to me that means, oh, somebody who filled me with a desire to do more or bigger or uh, something like what they were doing. Um, especially in the creative field. And, and, and looking back, I, I hadn't found that many. Um, uh, I think I've long had just a, a curiosity and a, and a drive to find the hard problems and think them through thoroughly and then put them out into the world. But I did recall a story from way back in high school. I was a, a theater kid, uh, joined the theater club, uh, that sort of stuff. And we had... Um, UIL in Texas, you may recall, which was uh, uh, the Interscholastic League. I forgot what the U stands for. I can't remember I can't either. remember either. Uh, but we would have like speech competitions where all sorts of folk kids would come together to meet and talk. Uh, and I went to a workshop at one of these conventions. And the teacher was, I don't, don't even remember what she was talking about. Uh, but she had said, okay, uh, so I'd like a couple of volunteers uh, to come up and let's try out this, this technique. That I'm, t that I'm telling you about. And I wanted to so bad. I was like, oh, that sounds fun. I really want to do, I want to get up there. Uh, but as a teenager, I was terrified about right, volunteering in front of other people. Um, and turns out that every other kid in the room was doing the same thing, holding their, their elbows close to their, to their rib gauges, uh, afraid to speak up first. And the, the, the instructor there, she looked around the room, saw no hands up, and she said, okay, you are going to have many moments like this in your life where you have the opportunity to volunteer and go first. And what you cannot do is let fear make you lose that opportunity. So what I'd like, and like, <laughs> I remember I didn't let her finish, my hand shot up. Because in just a couple of sentences, she had sort of given me permission to be the fool because of the opportunity that it affords. Um, and I have taken that advice uh, deeply to heart. Uh, first to volunteer, first to jump into a new domain, even though I may be partially wrong, that's okay because the opportunities that it affords are not worth the fear that it might cost you to say no. I love that story. Um, University Interscholastic League is what that actually stands for. Yes. No, that's okay. It's one of those things where if I have the opportunity to use one of these little agents, you know, my own agent, then I do. Um, any books that you're reading or was my initial assumption that, like, you're spending a lot of time, obviously, teaching and uh, speaking and, you know, writing books that you don't really have the time to uh, read anything that's long form? I don't have a lot of time for n fiction, even though as a kid that's what I probably read most of all. Um, I do read a lot of nonfiction um, as I am investigating ideas or new books. Um, and I'm also an average sketch noter. Do you, are you familiar with that, uh, that style yes. of note taking? Yes, yes. Um, well, I sketch note a lot and post them to my Twitter feeds. And when I get into a really juicy book, I'll even sketch note the book. Um, it helps me pay very deep attention and internalize that information. Uh, and the most recent book that I sketch noted, I, I went back to 1993 uh, to a book that Don Norman wrote uh, called The Things That Make Us Smart. And it's a, 
it's aged in parts very poorly because of course it deals with uh, forecasting and, and trying to tell the future, which is always problematic. Um, but a lot of the book is about how we distribute our intelligence to the objects around us, the devices and the people around us. We think of intelligence as being inside of this bone box of our skull, but in fact, no. We use the world as part of the way we, that we think. And I'm particularly interested in this because the companion book that I'm thinking about right now um, to the agentive book is, okay, well, what now that I've drawn a framework for what an agent looks like, well, is there a similar framework for an assistant? And I think we've got decades of design principles to draw on for it, but I'm most interested in making assistants that aren't a crutch, but that actually make us smarter for having used them. So for that reason, I went back to this book and wanted to see, had, had, had Norman talked about those particular things. And he's like right on the verge of sort of getting into the conceptual space that I want to write about. Um, but nonetheless, that, 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 that framework of, oh, that's right. We don't think in our heads, we think in the world. And that's the virtuous thing to do. So if you could, if you could reread it with the reminder that it is from the 1990s uh, <laughs> and see past uh, the things that have aged poorly, it's still a really interesting book uh, about how it is that humans move through the world with their brains. So that's cool. And one of the things that I like even more so than even the answer itself is the thought process. And so when I get to interview smart people like yourself, just hearing how they do it, and it's amazing. You know, the last guy that I talked to, um, uh, Sahil Jain, um, he reads like 10 pages at a time and will sort of sit back and, and, you know, let that soak in. But he's like, I haven't read an entire book since, you know, for probably 10 years. And so, but, you know, everyone's got their own different style. And so I, I love to be able to hear that and then share that. So um, last question, which is, you know, more of a fun question, and I always like to just make people human. Uh Assume, you know, and this is probably going to get back to your, uh, you know, your fear of sci-fi movies and the impossibility. So I'll say you probably remember Gilligan's Island. Think of the professor and, you know, creating a uh, coconut pedal powered bike. Um, you have one album you can listen to into perpetuity on this deserted island. What would it be and why? I have a pragmatic answer that's unsatisfying, but I have to say it because I'm a pragmatic guy. Uh, if there was like a survivalist book on tape, that would be the first thing, because I am like woefully unprepared to spend life on a deserted island. Uh, but uh, that said, I think you, you're, uh, the question more points towards uh, sort of an inspiration. Um, and I th thought quite a bit about it. Like I would want an, an epic story. I would want something that matches the themes of sort of facing something you're unprepared for. Um, and yet is sort of right in my wheelhouse of nerdy and quirky. Um, and I landed on a, uh, an album from 2000, I think it's in the early 2000s. It's uh, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. Um, oh my gosh, I've already had my coffee, so there's no excuse uh, for the Flaming Lips. There it is, um, by the Flaming Lips. Um, like the, 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 the song, The Morning of the Magicians, this beautiful song. Um, where the, the, the narrator is losing grip on the fundamentals of reality. He sings, um, uh, what is love and what is hate and why does it matter? 
Like, and I think that if I were on a desert island, I would probably be struggling with some of those same questions. Um, and it's so lovely and lyrical and epic uh, that that's the one I'd choose. So I have to say, and I'm, again, 35 interviews into this, I think that's the most thoughtful answer that anyone's given me. And I had never even thought about the pragmatic piece of the survivalist. You know, <laughs> you're the first one to answer with a non-music oh, really? answer for your oh, pragmatic. Wow, okay. So clearly, you know, a little bit of uh, insight into the brain of Chris Nossel here. Um, so anyway, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group, host of the What's No podcast show. And I have spent time, thoroughly enjoyed this with Chris Nossel, who is the uh, global design practice lead of travel and transportation at IBM, uh, but more importantly, speaker and author. We spoke about his three books. You can find all three of those books on Amazon. Uh, or at least I found two of them, and I'm assuming I just didn't find the third one, but we will provide links when we post this. We put uh, links into the blog post. It's also cross-posted uh, onto iTunes. We can't put links there, unfortunately, but anybody that wants to find them can go there. Um, Chris, thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you, Aaron. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.